Welcome to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. Relationships are so important, and yet they can be so difficult. The pandemic, social media, and a divided country have not helped. How do we develop new relationships or strengthen the ones that we have? How do we repair ones that seem to be broken? Listen to this week's talk from the series Through Thick and Thin as we explore ways to develop the kinds of friendships that will enrich our lives. Well, good morning. Uh, Many of you will probably remember that about three and a half years ago, I had an episode with my appendix that landed me in the hospital for nine days. So it was no fun, and I've shared the story a few times, but this morning, I'm hoping you'll bear with me when I tell part of the story that I have never shared before, I don't believe, in a message, because it relates to our subject here today. Uh, For those of you that aren't familiar with what happened, I had a stomach ache that lasted about four days. It just wouldn't go away. And um, apart from that, I don't know that I had many other symptoms, a little nauseous, maybe a slight fever. Uh, the, The biggest symptom that was odd to me was that my stomach was unusually large. It's like, why do I look bloated, you know? And I went that way for four days. My wife was saying, go to the doctor, go to the doctor, you know, for several of those days. And I finally, the day before Thanksgiving, decided to go see a doctor friend of mine who attends the church. He was able to get me in on short notice, and and he immediately diagnosed I had a problem with my appendix, and then he made a phone call to a surgeon that also attended the church to, to... deal with it right away. And so I went over to the surgeon, and next thing you know, I was getting ready for surgery. When the surgeon went in to look at the situation using one of those little scopes or whatever, he was hoping to to deal with it laparoscopically, just to kind of remove it. And when he looked in there, it was startling what he saw. It was shocking with what he saw. It was just absolutely a mess in there. He said the appendix was like paper. It just completely, it was like gone, and then I had gangrene. And my organs were all stuck together because of that. And my system, he said, now has stopped working. Nothing was working. That's why I was getting the bigger stomach. And I was in bad shape. And the next thing you know, he's, he's cutting me open. And it ended up being a major surgery, not a minor surgery. And I won't gross you out with the details, but he did explain some of the things he did. And it was, it was, a, it was kind of a big deal. So after the surgery... I was recuperating, and I was in a lot of pain. Now, I think I have a fairly high tolerance for pain. The very fact I walked in of my own accord shows that I, you know, I put up with kind of a lot before I got there, and I was in in agony. Pain is not the right word. Agony is the right word. And so, uh, as you would expect, the doctor prescribed pain medicine to be administered about every three hours. And the pain was not, it wasn't just where the surgery was. I mean, there was the outer area, the inner area. It was my stomach feeling like it was going to tear open. And then on top of that, they had to put a, 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 something down my nose and throat to drain. And it was all getting raw every time I swallowed. It was, I was in I was in the worst pain of my life, and all I could do really was kind of cry about it and then wait for the next time I was allowed to have some of this pain medicine. Most of the nurses, almost every nurse at the hospital was amazing. They were just wonderful and caring. I don't know how nurses, if you're a nurse here today, I don't know how you do it. I could not do your job, but I really felt, I really felt cared for uh, with almost every nurse except one. I had one nurse that just could not seem to understand the gravity of my situation. 
And so she would try to talk me out of taking the pain medicine when I needed it. Now, I was in agony, and the time would be done, and, and I'd want that medicine, and she'd try to say, well, you know, you don't want to be on these kinds of things or whatever else. And, and then on top of that, not only did she make me feel like a, a drug addict for taking it, but when it was time for the medicine, she was nowhere to be found. And a full hour would pass, past the time I was supposed to get it. Now, my understanding about pain is as long as you kind of keep it even keeled, you can take care of it. But if that pain gets out of control, it's really hard to bring it back down. And I was in absolute agony, and she just did not seem to care or notice. She didn't realize that the doctor, well, she should have. It was on the chart, I'm sure. But the doctor came to me two or three days in a row and said, you're not out of the woods yet, people die with what you have. You know, he just wanted me to know up front, I might not make it. I'd be in there for nine days. This wasn't just a simple surgery. I was in bad, bad shape. Did she not seem to understand that? I don't know what it was. At a certain point, though, a change took place. It was like, I think, two in the morning. The time had come and gone for me to get more pain medicine. And by the way, I understand we, we live in a state that's got a real opioid problem. So I, I get it. I understand that, but I was in agony. And uh, she came in, it was about two in the morning, and she took one look at me, and it was for the first time that she saw me. I think it was the first time. I, I think my face was probably as white as a ghost. I was, I was crying. I, I felt like I'd rather be dead. It was, the pain was that bad, and she took a look at me. And she said, I am so sorry. I, I should not have made you feel bad about taking the medicine which was prescribed for you. This is exactly what it's for. And I thought, yeah, it's about time. <laughs> but, but, but she finally got it there. Now, I realize in some professions it's dip difficult to have, maintain sympathy toward those who are suffering, because you see it all the time. And so I understand that even in my profession, I see, a, I see more death than most people. I, I go to more funerals than most, and I have to remember how painful it is for the family, because you can get just used to all of that. And so I realize that that's often the case. But we can't lose that ability to have compassion for other people. Now, again, I think sometimes, you know, sometimes you have to put a, a, a space between you and others. I, I think some, in some professions, you need a break from that. You can't, you can't be so sympathetic with every person there. You, it, you just wouldn't be able to hold it all. So I understand that, but in my case, it just was so, seems so necessary, so obvious. Now, today we're continuing our series related to friendship. And during this series, we've talked about, first of all, the fact that God created us to be relational people, so friendship really matters. We talked about being a friend to other people. Don't wait for people to be your friend. I think we can take the initiative to be friendly with others and to have friends. And then I talked about the importance of being committed to people and not giving up so easily. We live in cancer culture or cancel culture, and boy, if someone does something wrong and buy, that's the end of it. Well, we're called to have a greater loyalty than that. And then last week I talked about living out the, the Sermon on the Mount, which is what as Christians would set us apart from the world because the Sermon on the Mount is so radical. I mean, Jesus talked about things like turning the other cheek and loving, loving your enemies, doing good to those who mistreat you, things like that, being meek. 
Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The meek in Jesus' day were despised. It was a quality people looked down on. Oh, you're meek. And yet God, Christ called us to something else. But, as I talked last week, sometimes people misunderstand what Jesus was saying. Tried to clarify that last week. Today, I want to talk about entering into the joy and sorrow of other people based on Romans 12, 15, where we read, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Times of joy and sorrow provide some wonderful opportunities for us to really connect at a deep level with other people. In some ways, I view them as like a gift, And some of you are very, very good at this. In fact, I think moms, as a rule, are so much better at this than maybe dads, at rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those who weep. And and some of us, it's a little bit more of a struggle, I think, even for me personally. When I was growing up, there are two things that I have, two strikes against me when it comes to really entering into people's suffering or joy. First of all, I have the personality that is so very even-keeled, and so I've just never been the kind of person that gets overly excited. Like, if I were on one of these programs, like Price is Right, and I won $50,000, I'd say, yay. I'm not that kind of person that gets all, ah, jumping all over. That's why they'd never choose me for this show. No entertainment there, you know? But the other thing is that I, I, when I was raised, I just had this idea, this impression I picked up that you don't show your emotion. You, you shouldn't, you know, don't ever cry in front of anybody. That's embarrassing. Don't be angry. And I realize I've had to work at reconnecting, learning to reconnect at a deeper level, and I'm still working on it. Now, one of the most amazing stories in the Bible we're going to look at this morning is the story of Job. It's just a remarkable story found in the Old Testament. Job uh, endured more than anyone, I think, ever has since the beginning of time until now, except Jesus. He lost everything he had in terms of his wealth. He was incredibly wealthy. He lost basically literally everything. I mean, it really was everything. He lost it all. Then he lost his family, his, his seven boys and three girls all died when a storm hit the house where they were all gathered together, probably a tornado caused by the devil. And so he lost all his kids in one, one day. And then the third thing is that Satan struck him with these painful sores from, from head to toe. And that's where we pick up the story in Job 2, 7 and 8 where we read, so Satan left the Lord's presence and inflicted Job with terrible boils from the sole of his feet to the top of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery to scrape himself while he sat among the ashes. I think Satan really wondered, what's the most painful thing I could possibly do? And it was to have these painful sores everywhere, even under his feet, couldn't even walk. It was horrible what he was going through. Now, his suffering was so great that his wife said, why don't you just curse God and die? You know, she had the idea that if you curse God, lightning would come down and put him out of his ministry. Er, Not ministry, misery. Maybe those are the same. No, just kidding. Job responded to her in Job 1.10. You speak as a foolish woman speaks, he told her. Should we accept only good from God and not adversity? Through all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Now, it's at this point of the story that we get to what I want to focus on here today, because Job's friends heard about his suffering, and so they decided to meet together and go visit him. 
And they did a lot right. When they came into Job's suffering, they did a lot of things right, but they did some things that were wrong. And I think we can learn from the example of both of these things. Now, my takeaway today is just simply what Paul said, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. I think we need to be people who are putting this into practice. So let's pick up the story in Job 2, 11 through 13. We read Job's three friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the Namathite, heard about all this adversity that had happened to him. Each of them came from his home. They met together to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they looked from a distance, they could barely recognize him. They wept aloud, and each man tore his robe and threw dust into the air and on his head. Then they sat on the ground with him seven days and nights, but no one spoke a word to him because they saw that his suffering was very intense. So up to this point in the story, I feel like they did everything right. So what are some of the things they did right? Well, first of all, they were willing to spend time with him and and a lot of time. Most likely, these guys had traveled a great distance to even see Job. Their names give you a hint as to where they're from. For example, the Bible Knowledge Commentary makes the point that these guys probably came from the, the regions of or the countries of Edom, Arabia, and Canaan. And so they traveled a great distance in order to be with their friend. And I would suggest they were prominent men. In his day, Job was the greatest man. He's called the greatest man in the East. And so I think these were other leaders of of large areas. And, And so they're prominent men. They're busy men. And they came to spend time with Job. And they were willing to do it for seven days. So that's really great. It's a wonderful example just to come and be with. And second, they came to sympathize with them according to the text. Uh, And and in their sympathy, I think they just really meant well. Uh, Merriam-Webster defines sympathy in this way. Sympathy, which comes from the Greek word sim, meaning together, and pathos, referring to feelings or emotion, is used when one person shares the feelings of another. And so it's really sharing with, it's entering into the feelings, it's together with someone in their pain and suffering and, and what they're going through. Now, in a minute, I'm going to make a distinction between sympathy and empathy because there is a difference between the two of them, but they came, it says, to sympathize with him. And so we'll talk about that in a minute. The third thing they did is they specifically came to comfort him. The text makes it very clear that's why they were coming, to comfort him. Now, we'll see again in a minute. They, they were not good at the comforting part, but at least they're, they, they came to do that. You find someone in this difficult spot and you think, what could I do to make them more comfortable? What could I say? What could I bring? What could I do to help them be more comfortable? And then they mourned over his situation. The text indicated that when they saw him in the distance, they hardly could recognize him. And and they did several things. It says they began weeping. It says they tore their clothes. They threw dust in the air. All these were expressions of deep sorrow. Tearing the ropes supposedly has the idea of communicating that I'm just torn up over all this. We'd say it these days, my heart is torn in half. Back then it was actually bowels, they'd say. But my innards, I'm torn up over this. And so they tear their clothes as a visible sign of, of just how torn up they are inside. And it was great. And they throw the dust in the air. It was, I think, a symbol of humility, but also may God 
see my plight and may he rain down on me good. And so they were wonderful about this expression of, of sorrow. And then the most meaningful thing I think they did was they sat with him for seven days and seven nights. And here's the part that's meaningful, most meaningful, without talking. So much about really comforting other people is, is about not talking, not offering a lot of advice, not trying to help the person understand why they're going through what they do, unless they want it. We're talking about unsolicited advice here. But, um, you know, they just sat with him for seven, seven days and no one said a word. And so up to this point, I think it's, it's really good. Obviously, the custom was in biblical times that if you came into the presence of someone who was suffering, you didn't say anything until they opened their mouth first. And so Job said nothing for seven days, and so they just sat there. And I think that's wonderful. And they didn't launch into it. They waited very graciously for him to speak. So where did they get wrong? One main way, it's really two ideas, but one main way. They went wrong when they became his judge instead of his friend. Or another way to put it, they went wrong when they ceased to be his friend and they became his judge. They began offering unsolicited and unhelpful advice. They made him feel guilty for what he was suffering with. They added to his suffering that. Now let's talk about this just a little bit and what their problem was. Now in a nutshell, I think the problem between these Guys, what they did and what they should have done is the difference between sympathy and empathy. So let me talk about this for just a little bit. In the Bible, sympathy is always a good thing. Again, it's sympathos. It's, it's entering into the suffering of someone else. So in the Bible, when you read the word sympathy, it's always good. In fact, Jesus sympathizes with us in Hebrews 4, 15, and 16. We read, for we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, that's talking about Jesus, but one who's been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, because this is true, let's approach the throne of grace with boldness so we may receive mercy and find grace to help at the proper time. I love this. Jesus took upon himself our humanity and he suffered in literally every way that all of us do. He knew what it was to be hungry and thirsty and be, have sleepless nights and, and to experience pain and he just went through everything we did. And then he eventually died and so he even endured death so that he understands all of it. Now, because Jesus is God, of course, he was omniscient before this and he understood it but it wasn't until he took on flesh and blood that he, he gained an experiential knowledge of what it means to be human and, and what the frailty of these bodies and everything else. And so the writer of Hebrews is making this argument because Jesus has gone through it all and he suffered so much. He's someone you can approach. And he wants to give you mercy and he wants to give you the grace you need because he really understands. I mean, he, he did understand, but not in the same way when he took on flesh and blood. And so sympathy is a good thing in the Bible. Everywhere it appears, it's, it's referred to as a good thing. But in our culture today, we distinguish between sympathy and empathy. And I want to pull away a little bit from the biblical definition because this is where these guys went wrong. They were sympathetic, they were not empathetic, and that's the difference. So let me try to define these. Dictionary.com defines sympathy, sympathy this way. 
Sympathy is when you feel bad for another person, but you don't know what it's like to be in their shoes. You're kind of observing, you know, you, you feel bad for what you see, but you don't know what it's like. Empathy is the ability to imagine oneself in the situation of another, experiencing the emotions, ideas, or opinions of that person. So let me clarify it a little bit more. A scholar by the name of Brene Brown, she's a research professor at the University of Houston. She talks about why empathy is better. She writes, empathy is shown in how much compassion and understanding we can give to another. Sympathy is more of a feeling of pity for another. Empathy is our ability to understand how someone feels, while sympathy is our relief in not having the same problems. When we relate with empathy, we give the other person space to own their emotions and feelings. We reflect on what they're feeling and provide a safe space for all emotions, even negative ones. When we relate with sympathy, we move into problem-solving mode. We have ideas and judgments about how the person feels and what they should do. This not only minimizes the person's problems, but it ignores their feelings. That's what Job's friends got wrong. They had sympathy. They could look at her from a distance, oh, I'm sorry. They expressed pity. It's a hard thing you're going through. But they never entered into his shoes. They never stopped to think, what must it be like for Job? So let me demonstrate this, how this fleshed out in the story. Going back to Job 3, Job finally spoke. And so we read in Job 3.1, after this, Job began to speak. And he cursed the day he was born. He said, may the day I was born perish in the night when they said, a boy is conceived. In the midst of his suffering, he just blurted out, I wish I'd never been born. It would have been easier for me not to, not to be born. And he spends an entire chapter, all of chapter 3 is basically the same theme, that if I had a calendar, I would re- erase that day from the calendar as if... It never existed. That's the suffering I'm going through. Now, if, if you were sitting there and Job said that, I wish I'd never been born, and he began to wax eloquent about how it felt and everything, what would you have done? How would you have responded? Would you have corrected him for not the best theology? Would you say, well, you know, you kind of have a bad attitude here? You know, you're not thinking clearly. Would you have tried instead to understand and, and get in his shoes just a little bit? So the first person to respond to Job was Eliphaz, Eliphaz, and he was likely the eldest, according to the culture, he would have, been, have, have the right to speak first, and so we read in Job 4.1, then Eliphaz, the Temanite, replied, should anyone try to speak with you when you're exhausted? Yet... Who can keep from speaking? Indeed, you've instructed many and have strengthened weak hands. Your words have steadied the one who was stumbling and braced the needs that were buckling. But now that this has happened to you, you've become exhausted. It strikes you and you're dismayed. Do you hear what he's saying? You've been given advice all these years to all these people and your advice has really strengthened them and now you're the one suffering and what? You collapse. Bad, bad Job. That's, that's how they were treated him. And it was not helpful. 
I would I liken it to somebody really suffering and having a hard time with it, and then some well-meaning Christian comes along and says, you know, the Bible says you should rejoice always, and I don't think you're rejoicing. That's, kind of, that's basically what they were doing to him. Job had the inability to see things from, or Eliaphaz had the inability to see things from Job's perspective. And the difference is the difference between sympathy, I'm sure glad I'm not you, to empathy. This must be really hard. Eliaphaz uh, continued in Job 4.8. He said, in my experience, those who plow injustice and those who sow trouble reap the same. So this one is a very important verse because it is the argument that Eliphaz and the others all use for the next 30 chapters of this book. They have one main argument that all three of these guys keep using over and over again. Let me read the verse again. In my experience, those who plow injustice and those who sow trouble reap the same. They're saying, you are in your situation because of sin in your life. You've, my, my experience is that nobody goes through hard things unless they've done something wrong. So what is it? Confess what you've done wrong. Lyphus goes on in the, uh, later on in the chapter, in verse 17, to even fortify his argument to say, and in the night I had a dream and I, a messenger came to me. And this is what the advice was in Job 5, 17. He said, see how happy the man is God corrects. So don't reject the discipline of the Almighty. You're being disciplined by God. The problem was that Job couldn't figure out what he could have possibly done. Job knew, of course, he wasn't um, sinless. He would have known that, of course. But he could not figure out that anything, if, if it, indeed it was true what they were saying, that you're getting what you deserve, he just could not figure out anything he could have done that could have caused him to get such suffering. It just did not make any sense. There was nothing there. So he spends his arguments saying over and over again, I just, I, I'm, I'm righteous. I mean, I, let me have a, an audience with God himself. Let's go to court and I'll prove that there's nothing I've done to merit what's happened to me. Now, what's ironic about this whole situation, of course, is that we know the backstory. We know that Job was more righteous than anyone in his day or age. In fact, his suffering was directly because he was righteous. But these guys camped on the fact that he's such a sinner. And for the next 30 chapters, they go back and forth like this. Now, it's not until we get to chapter 32 that we discover that there was another guy sitting there it's, it's kind of funny. You go through the whole thing, and then you get to chapter 32. There were the three guys that are referred to in the beginning, but when you get to chapter 32, you find out there was a fourth guy there, plus Job. He was the youngest, and I don't know how old he was, but he didn't say anything up to this point because that was in the custom. You let all the elders say all that they wanted to say, and only when silence pervaded or prevailed, then he finally spoke up, and what he said was pretty profound. In Job 32, 2 and 3, we read, Then Elihu, son of Barachel, the Buzrite from the family of Ram, became angry. He was angry at Job because he had justified himself rather than God. In other words, he had implied that there must be some injustice. He implied it. He never stated it outright, but he just implied, God's not treating me fairly here. And so he, he was mad at Job for that reason. Job should have been justifying God, whatever God does, instead of 
justifying himself. And then it says he was also angry at Job's three friends because they failed to refute him and yet had condemned him. He's exactly right. They leveled all these accusations against Job, but they didn't prove a single one of them. There's nothing that they brought out. They just argued, well, bad things happen to bad people, and you must be a bad person. You're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. And this young guy looks at it and says, that's just wrong. It's just wrong to accuse him if you don't know anything. Now, Job presents how I think we should deal with one another in terms of rejoicing with those who rejoice and weeping with those. He explains it in Job 6, 14, and 15, or it's one of the places. He says, this is what should happen. A, a despairing man should receive loyalty from his friends even if he abandons the fear of the Almighty. Even if he goes astray, your friends should be, you stick with you. My brothers are as treacherous as a wadi, as seasonal streams that overflow. Now, I'll explain that in a minute. But what he's basically saying is, it's God's job to judge, it's not yours. It's, it's not your job to do that. Your job is to love. Now, this is consistent with the rest of the Bible. D didn't Jesus say, love your enemies, do good to those who mistreat you? Talked about that last week. You're not jo your job is not to judge the world or people. It's not our job to judge people. It's God's. My job is only to love, love my enemies, do good. To my job is just to love. And Job got that. And in his day, he was, again, the most righteous man who lived in his day, and I think he's exactly right here. He said, you guys should be showing compassion and, and commitment, loyalty to me, but that's not what I'm receiving here. And then he said, you're as treacherous as a wadi. Uh, a wadi is usually a dry river bed. When I was in Israel, we walked along a wadi. Well, it, it can be just a valley or something like that, but you, usually or often it's a river bed. And the thing about a wadi is that most of the time, uh, during the rainy season, it's got water. It's a like a river. But in the dry season, it could be dry, as could be. And so when I've gone to Israel, I've walked in the wadi because there was no water there at all. And Job says, you guys are unreliable, like a wadi. And, and the idea would be, if somebody is wandering in the wilderness, and they're looking for water, and they remember, hey, wait, there's a river over here. And then you show up to this wadi, and you find out there's no water. And that's what Job's friends, that's how they were treating him. He also went on to say that you are as treacherous. He talks about being as treacherous as a wadi. Why were they treacherous? Why is that used? Why dangerous? Well, because people have died in wadis before. You see what happens to this day. I've seen mo movie clips of this. I mean, video, true, real video. Uh, people will be walking in a wadi, a whole group of them, and it's completely dry, and they do not, do not realize that it rained the night before five miles back. And because the ground was so dry, the water begins to just rush down, and it goes along this wadi, and it swoops in and kills people that are walking in the wadi. And that's kind of what he's saying. You guys are as treacherous as that. You're, you're like dangerous to me. I mean, this is pretty hard words. But ultimately, he was saying, I should be able to count on you. You should be helping me, not becoming my accusers. He goes on to say in Job, uh, Job 16, 2 through 5, he says, you're all miserable comforters. Is there no end to your empty words? What provokes you that you continue testifying? If you were in my place, I could also talk like you. 
That's exactly right. I could string words together against you and shake my head against you. Instead, I would encourage you with my mouth and the consolation from my lips would bring relief. That's what I would do. And I believe that's exactly what he would do. When life is good for us, it's sure easy to look on those that it's not good for and, and judge and make opinions and everything else. But when we're the ones suffering, it's hard. And other people look on it and they begin judging us. They're adding to what we're our suffering. We are called to rejoice with those who rejoice. And we're called to weep with those who are weeping. Now, if you know the story of Job, the way it ends, God rebukes or reproves Job. The main thing that God reproves him for is not his attitude or anything like that. He reproves him for speaking about God without knowing what God is really like. In other words, it was this inference. You don't know why I do this, and, but I'm God, and you just have to trust that. And that's what he was reproved for. You know, he spoke things about God that he did, just didn't understand. And most of it was right on. Anyway, what he said. But we know who's right in this story with how God faced those three guys. Now, the only one that didn't get rebuked here was that young guy. But we read in Job 42, 7 through 9, it says, After the Lord had finished speaking to Job, he said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends. For you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Because Job didn't really speak the truth. He just didn't know why. Verse 8, now take seven bulls and seven rams. Go to my servant Job and offer a burnt offering for yourselves. Then my servant Job will pray for you. I will surely accept his prayer and not deal with you as your folly deserves. For you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. Then Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, went and did as the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. The story makes it clear that God was angry with these guys for the way they treated Job. Because God knew what it was about. And they accused him falsely, and they mistreated him, and they added to his suffering. Now, what I want to encourage us to do is just get better at entering into the sorrow of others and better into the rejoicing of others. Sometimes I have prayed, in fact, often I've prayed along these lines because of my own struggle with entering in sometimes. Lord, help me understand what they're going through. Help me to appreciate it. Help me to have compassion. Lord, help me to enter into their pain. I also want to enter into their joy as well because, again, I think this... this seems to tie us together with one another and, and get out of this position of evaluating and judging and, and maybe offering advice that's not solicited. Because I think sometimes we do sin against others. Let me give you an example. And maybe you, you may be offended by it, but it's, just call it a discussion. Then something that, you know, you wrestle with it, I wrestle with it, you know. But I think sometimes people are going through, they have a health issue like maybe cancer, and it doesn't look curable, and then someone comes up and they say something like, if you had enough faith, you'd be healed of this. This is, a, from my perspective, you're adding a spiritual guilt to a person who already feels horrible, and then you come along and you add that to them. Like, if you only had enough faith, you're a bad person. You're not just sick physically, you're sick spiritually. 
And, and I don't think it's, it's not helpful. Let me close by saying uh, with my own example, and I, and I think we should look for opportunities, by the way, to do this, but in my own example, uh, I didn't have many visitors because I, I specifically said, please, I, I, I can't handle a lot of visitors. I'm, I'm in so much pain. I look horrible, I probably smell, you know. It's, I, can't, I don't have the energy to enter, entertain visitors one after another, and so I'm really severely limited, but I, I let some come and visit. And it was interesting how I experienced the visits uh, many of them, most of them, I think, were able to enter into my pain, and, and one or two wept as they were standing there, but there were one or two also that wanted to share all these Bible verses with me about how God's working it out for the good and how you need to read your... I knew all the verses they shared. I've memorized those verses. I've known them for 30 years, and I don't need that reminder at that point. What I needed is just come and enter in. And just, just love me where I am and help me struggle with it. I, if I ask for advice, I am asked for advice personally, and then I do. I'm in a hospital room. They say, please help me explain why this is happening. Okay, I'll, I'll give you some thoughts. And then the last thing I'll leave you with related to this and even the visitors that came to see me is that we're going to get this thing wrong. And, um, and, and I've known some people that got really bitter because someone came up to them in their suffering and they said the wrong thing. They were, they were trying to say the right thing, but they said the wrong thing. We all can grow in this area, but I encourage you to have grace toward anyone who comes to show you kindness or sympathy. If they say the wrong thing, love overlooks a multitude of transgressions, just forgive that. And don't have a, a bad attitude toward the person who wanted to say and do the right thing, but the, the truth is most of us don't know what to say. We're kind of like Peter on the night of the transfiguration where he just blurted out something. We say things and we realize maybe that wasn't the best thing. Let's forgive each other, but most of all, let's enter into people's pain and suffering. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you do understand what we go through, that your son Jesus experienced it all, and that his is a throne of grace, and we can receive mercy and grace to help in the time of our need. And we want to be ones who extend that to others through whatever suffering they may face. We also want to share in their joy. Thank you for the example you've given us through Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Ridge Weekly Podcast. If you'd like to hear more messages now, you can check out our past series at theridge.church slash messages or download the free Ridge app. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time.